I want to light our second Advent candle. Last week we talked about the theme of hope, and this morning our theme is love. And uh, some of you who may celebrate Advent at home or in other contexts, you may realize we're a week behind. Yeah, sorry about that. Some of you that may be driving you crazy. Um, here's what I'd say. We wanted to arrange the sermons so that we were able to teach on an Advent theme each week. And uh, due to the way the sermon series ended in our last sermon series on the gospel, we're a week uh, behind on this, and we're going to keep rolling right on through December 27th. So on the 27th, we'll talk about our last, uh, our fourth uh, theme. And this morning, we're on the second one, on love, and I was thinking a lot about that word, and I thought about how sentimental that word is in our language. It's just maybe the most sentimental word in the English language, love. And, and especially in this season, there's a lot of things we love about this season. I want to tell you some of the things I love about the Christmas season. I love the annual family trip to get the Christmas tree. Uh, I love Christmas music. I, I own a ton of Christmas music. It's something that I collect. I love hot chocolate. I love driving around to see the lights. I love the building anticipation in my three daughters' eyes as you know, slowly the presents under the tree are you know, building. Um, I'm trying to love Elf on the Shelf. <laughs> Not there yet. I love the trip that we will take later to be with my parents and Jody's parents and our siblings and just do some reconnecting. I love Christmas Eve singing Silent Night, Holy Night while we light the candles together and it sort of spreads throughout the church. I love the season and honestly I get a little sentimental about it, but there's a subtle danger lurking in the sentimentality of the season. And I don't think the primary danger is that we would Forget Jesus, you know, the reason for the season, although I I think that's there. But most of us aren't going to forget the reason for the season. I think here's the danger. The danger is the idea that we're bombarded with this time of year. It's actually a beautiful lie that our deepest needs and deepest longings can be filled by all the Christmas stuff. Here's another way to say it. The lie is that you can have the things that your heart most desires, which, by the way, what your heart most desires at its core is to be loved. The lie is that you can have that through some combination of time off, new toys, close relationships, the spirit of giving, and warm sentimentality. And I'll say this, if that were true, you would not need a Savior. You would not need God. I think the tragedy of secularizing Christmas is not so much the idea that we've turned a spiritual message into a material message. I actually think it's almost the opposite of that. Let me explain what I mean. I think the real tragedy of the secularization of Christmas is the way that we're offered the promise of fulfillment through things that can never actually fulfill us. Here's another way to think about it. Making Christmas less about Christ and more about all these other things takes our eyes off of the one solid, tangible provision for our deepest need and instead offers us false fulfillment in things that are nice, but in the end are too flimsy to bear the weight of our actual neediness. By the way, this is why some of you get the post-Christmas blues when it's all over, right? The excitement's gone, the sentimentality is gone, and you realize... It didn't fill me. It didn't fill me. 
Now, here's what's fascinating to me, right? The the secular Christmas season doesn't reject the idea of love. In fact, I'd say it doesn't reject any of these Advent themes. Hope, love, joy, peace. It incorporates them in, but the problem is it takes the idea of love, for example, and it sentimentalizes it. So it says this, that love is something that can be had through the perfect Christmas turkey and sitting around the perfect Christmas morning with the perfect Christmas family and the right Christmas gift and the warm glow and the holly and the ivy and you can be filled. Here's what the real Christmas message is, that the only solid foundation that any of us have for hope or love or joy or peace is God intervening in our lives because we are bankrupt without him. This is the message of Christmas. God has come. Love has come. God tangibly, solidly, materially, in a sense, intervened in the world. God became flesh, incarnation. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. There's so many different places we could go to to see this played out, but where my mind went when I thought about love was Mary's song. The text that Tiffany already read to us so beautifully, turn to Luke 1, we'll begin in verse 46. Before we get there, though, let me give you a little bit of context. This is a song that Mary sang when she was still in the early stages of her pregnancy with the Son of God. If you remember, the angel had come to her and proclaimed, this is what's going to happen. And Mary was initially confused, but she received it. She said, may it be according to what you have said, I'm the servant of God. And then shortly after that, she makes the long journey, probably three or four days journey to her cousin Elizabeth's home. Of course, Elizabeth was also pregnant. Her son would be John, John the Baptist. And uh, when Mary approaches Elizabeth, the baby inside of Elizabeth, right, moves, kicks, like rejoices. There's this sense that there's some acknowledgement, even with the baby that is inside Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth then proclaims to Mary, it's all true, you know. How is it that the mother of my Lord has come to me? Elizabeth says, and in that moment, what the angel has told to Mary is yet again confirmed by this prophetic word through her cousin Elizabeth. And Mary's response is a song. The first Christmas carol. As we look at this text, I think it's important to think about something. This is an an idea that was sort of new to me as I I studied this text this week. There's a sense that Mary is the very first Christian. Let me explain what I mean by that. She's certainly not the first person to believe in God, not the first person that was saved, not, not the first person historically who will be with the Father in heaven for sure, but there's a sense that she was the first person to understand the Christmas message and to be changed by it. And of course, at this moment, she didn't fully understand how salvation would work itself out. But here's what she knew. She knew that the particular baby that she was carrying was the hope of the world. That 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 infant inside of her that was growing inside her womb was the savior of the world. She understood that and it radically changed her. So I want you to see this song that I think is a first indication of how this gospel to Mary, this good news, transformed everything that she knew and all that she was. So here's the outline of the message, the message of Christmas, which is what we hear in this song. The message is deeply personal, utterly transformational, and totally revolutionary. 
We'll see the first part of that, deeply personal, in verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. The message of Christmas is deeply personal. Now, this whole song is commonly called the Magnificat. That's a Latin word. It's the translation of the Greek Word megaluno, you might recognize the prefix mega, everything these days is mega, you know, you the mega, mega Lego set, you got the megaplex, uh, you can order a mega-sized french fries to go with your mega-sized burger, it means to make something big, to make it great, or we might say in more spiritual terms to exalt, glorify, or magnify. These two verses, 46 and 47, are written in a poetic form. Uh, Hebrew poetry often uses parallelism. We've talked about this before. This is synonymous parallelism. In other words, saying the same thing in two different ways. And the reason I mention that is these two words that Mary uses are intentional. My soul and my spirit. You see, these are the deepest parts of her. She could have said, my lips and my voice or my words. Instead, she reaches down and says, the deepest part of who I am magnifies, exalts God, rejoices in my Savior. Something has been stirred deep with inside Mary. And so you realize the Christmas message is not just something she heard and, and believed with her mind, although it started there. But the Christmas message cut to the core of who she is. And she, as she has internalized it, what begins to come out of her, I think perhaps even uncontrollably through the Spirit, is this magnification is this glorification of her savior one commentator noted how similar mary's words are to the answer to the first question in the westminster shorter catechism you remember this we've gone over this in here earlier in the year what is the chief end of man chief end of man is to glorify god and enjoy him forever Interesting, two concepts that Mary's tapping into here almost the same words that she uses it bubbles out of her naturally as she's being changed by this news. Verse 48, first part of verse 48, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For is the word, it's a causal linking word. It gives the reason that she's exalting and rejoicing. You might think of it as because, you know, because he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Now it's important here to understand the cultural and political context Mary was raised in. The nation of Israel, the Jewish people, had been promised a Messiah, but, it, but God had sort of gone silent for a long time. So all the prophecies were long ago for their context. In fact, we don't have any record of any prophecy or God speaking to his people for at least 400 years prior to this moment. And then for it to come about in such a way, an unexpected way, a baby born to an unknown, poor peasant woman from a got, forgotten corner of the country is surprising in the least. It's shocking. It's, it's ironic, it's head-scratching, and it's almost like Mary is the very per- first person to comprehend it all, like she's the first person to get a joke and begin laughing out of the joy that that ironic situation inspires. Of all the ways God could have brought us a Messiah, I imagine her thinking, he placed him in my belly. It's unbelievable. It's laugh-out-loud surprising. But despite how unlikely it is, Mary has believed it. And it has become deeply personal for her. My soul, my spirit, you see. Now here's some application 
for you and me, when you really get the message of Christmas, right? When, when you understand the message of Christmas, and, and what is that message, by the way? Well, if you look at the whole story, the message of Christmas is essentially God became a human child so that you and me could become children of God. When you start to see how your story intersects for that, when you find yourself in that, when you get the joke, so to speak, I say that with a lot of reverence, then your natural response should be humble amazement. The message of Christmas should become deeply personal for you, just like it was for Mary. Now, you might think, well, she has an advantage over us. An angel came to her, and she became pregnant, right, supernaturally. Don't you think that's an advantage? I haven't deeply, personally experienced Jesus in that kind of way. Well, we have a small advantage over Mary, at least at this stage in her life, and that's we know the rest of the story. We know that salvation will come about through Jesus growing to live a sinless life, dying for our sins, defeating death through resurrection, also that we can be reconciled to God, that we can be knitted back into right relationship. Now, when you reflect on that, for you, right? Not just generally big picture for all people, but for you, Christ died for you. When you reflect on that, you can say the same thing as Mary, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. In other words, the message of Christmas should draw you to think something like, who am I that God would notice me? It's just as surprising that I would have a small part in this, just as surprising as it would that Mary would have a part in this. I'm totally undeserving of this gift. And this is what happens at our conversion, right? We understand the theology, Christ died for my sins and was raised. We believe it, and then something stirs deep within us through the Spirit, and we have a personal response of praise, right? My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It becomes deeply personal. So here's the question for you. Has the message of Christmas become so deeply personal for you that there's not a whole lot of room for all that other Christmas season stuff to crowd him out? Has that happened? If not, my encouragement for you this season is to reflect on what God has done for you. Undeserving, unwarranted, unexpected for you. The true message of Christmas is deeply personal. It's also utterly transformational. Utterly transformational. We'll pick up our text in 48b, the second half of that verse, and then read through 49. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Mary recognized things would never be the same for her. She would never be the same. Her core identity had changed. It had shifted. The baby inside of her changes her identity. She would be ever, forever be known as the mother of Messiah. From this time on, that the, the, the Greek phrase there in your New Testament is a phrase that Luke uses multiple times throughout his gospel. And it's a significant phrase. It always indicates a radical and permanent change. A radical and permanent shift has taken place. I want to give you one example. You don't need to turn there. But in Luke 5.10, you're familiar with this passage. Jesus says to Simon Peter, the fisherman, from this time on, same Greek phrase, from this time on, 
you will fish for people. You see, your identity, Peter, is no longer fisher of, fisherman of fish. You're now fisher of men. I've changed who you are. It's this idea that you'll no longer be who you were. The message of Christmas or the message of the gospel is truly transformational. And so Mary is our example in this. You know, once again, we, we, we look at the way that she's been transformed. I'd say it this way. What's true for Mary is no less true for us. Deeply transformational. Now, it may be a little less obvious, perhaps. You know, Mary sort of wore her transformation on the outside, didn't she? For all to see. Do we? Should we? Like Mary, your core identity has been transformed by this child. If you have received and believed in this one as your savior. You are no longer who you were. For Mary, her core identity was transformed from an unknown Jewish peasant girl to the mother of the Messiah. For you, your identity has been transformed from a lost and longing soul without a true home to an adopted child of God. Chosen, holy, dearly loved. In this baby... Love has come for you. So you can say, like Mary, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. You see, her words can become your words. And then just as Mary would spend the rest of her life sort of figuring out what it means to live out her new identity as mother of Messiah, you and I spend the rest of our lives learning what it means to live out our new identity as children of God and how that impacts and informs and flows into every single area of our lives. We are to be utterly transformed by the message of Christmas. And finally, you know, the Christmas message is deeply personal, it's utterly transformational, and it's totally revolutionary. I want you to see that in verses 51 through 55, totally revolutionary. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to, his, to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to our, his descendants forever. Now, this part of Mary's song doesn't sound to us a lot like Christmas. I kind of think maybe that's why we don't sing this as one of our Christmas carols. Like, no one that I know, at least popular in a carol that I've sang, I've ever translated these words and stuck them in a Christmas carol that at least has made it. It's not a top 40 this time of year. Mary understood, however, these concepts intuitively because of her cultural and her nationalistic context. And and here's what I'd say, and I want to say this and I want to unpack it. Explain what I mean. You haven't fully grasped the real message of Christmas until you understand that it is totally revolutionary. Now, let's think about Mary. Mary was part of a poor, marginalized people group, oppressed economically, oppressed militarily, oppressed socially. She she had no connections. She had no upward mobility. That was the plight of the people that she was born into. And Mary understood rightly that salvation through Messiah was more than a spiritual reality. 
It was that life on earth would be different than she knew it. Now, this is where Mary's perspective, I gotta, I gotta say this, this is where Mary's perspective still sort of reflects an old covenant view. Remember last week we talked about the idea of the two covenants. And so, like the Old Testament prophets, Mary didn't yet realize that Messiah would come twice. There'd be two advents or two arrivals, two comings of Messiah. First coming, atonement, sacrifice for our sins to make us spiritually right with God. Second coming, which is still future tense even for us, He'll come as king. He will restore to Israel the place that he has chosen for them. He will lift up the poor. He will bring down the other rulers. You see, these verses that we just read are largely talking about the second advent, what is to come. Mary's talking about them as if they've happened already. Now, how does she do that? You may have noticed that the text in the English translation, which is also true in Greek, is in past tense. All these are past tense verbs. He has brought down rulers. He has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry. How could Mary be talking about the future? How is that possible? It's written in past tense. Now, uh, let me me go down a little path. This gets a little bit technical, but it's going to be worth it. These verbs are using a a Greek verb tense called the aorist. Verb tense. It's something that we don't have in English. Now, the aorist verb tense typically signifies past tense. And so the English translators have rightly written this past tense. However, there's a particular usage of the aorist verb tense, typically used in poetry and and often in prophecy, where the author is using this verb tense to describe something that has not yet happened but is so certain that they can write about it in the past tense. Now, in in Greek study, we call that the prophetic aorist. Mary is saying, essentially, this is as good as done. I will talk about this as it's, it's happened. And in a sense, because Messiah has arrived, she's saying, it's as good as here. Messiah has come. All these prophecies are as good as lived out. We just have to wait for history to catch up to what has happened prophetically, you see. Now, you see how solid and tangible the Christmas message is in Mary's mind? There's nothing sentimental about it. There's nothing flimsy. It's it's real. It's solid. Like she could sink her teeth into it. She's saying this has happened. He's come. Now, I want to pull three applications from this idea that the message of Christmas is totally revolutionary. And I don't know if I have time for all three. I'm going to make time for all three. But let me walk through them just as briefly as I can. First application is this. We don't identify directly with Mary's political, social, economic context. Most of us in this room don't. Okay, most of us in this room are sitting in a very different social economic context. And yet, it doesn't take us paying much attention to our context today to, our, to remember that our world is upside down. It's upside down. Evil and violence and oppression and injustice are rampant to the place where sometimes, if you have your eyes wide open, it can feel suffocating. It should give great encouragement to your faith that every time you see a depiction of the pregnant Mary or the baby lying in the manger 
It's a reminder to us that the enemy's days are numbered. They're as good as done. This age of evil, injustice, heartbreaking suffering that we even are feeling as a body this morning, its end is certain. Its doom is sure. Every day is one day closer to the return of the king to make all things new. Mary's reference to Abraham creates a nice little bookend for us, doesn't it? We just got through that whole series talking about Abraham, talking about what God promised to him, what we can still look forward to. I want you to realize something. This hit me pretty hard this week. Do you realize that the amount of time that Mary was separated from God's promise to Abraham is almost exactly the same amount of time that you and I are separated from the promises in these texts. You see, and Jesus' first coming. It's been about 2,000 years. Mary was looking back about 2,000 years to God's promise to Abraham, you see. Messiah has come, and he will come again. Have faith. That's application one. Secondly, this one may be a little less comforting and more challenging to most of us. Christmas is a great opportunity to give a tangible preview of the economic and social value system of the coming kingdom. Now, what do I mean by that? Many of the things that we value most are least valued in God's economy, and many of the things that we value least are most valued in God's economy. Did you hear that idea? come into play in the words that Mary was speaking as she was looking forward to a day where the poor would be lifted up, the rich would go away empty-handed. You see, what she's saying is God's value system turns our human, man-centered value system on its head. It it doesn't just adjust it or or kind of give it sort of a, a, a chiropractic tweak. It turns it upside down. It inverts it. Now, this is why Christians around this time of year especially, have historically focused on the poor and the needy in this season. So that red kettle that you pass by in and out of Target right, multiple times every week, that has historical roots, as does many other Christian initiatives during this season, of looking at texts like this and saying, the Advent, the second Advent is coming. Let's give a preview, if you will, to the world of what God's value system looks like. Let's be generous those of us who have been given much to steward this is why we do global christmas a fellowship y'all i I was weeping as we watched the images of south sudan mighty god bless fellowship bible why would god bless fellowship bible so we can bless the world. So we can give. So we can say this. We may not live today 
in a system that reflects God's values to the full extent. But we will give a preview. We will give a taste. We will take a place like war-torn South Sudan and we will say we will invest some resources that God has given us to make something happen that will point to what is yet to come. To say, look at this world. This is what will happen when the Savior comes back, when the King returns. All will be made right and oppressed people will be lifted up. I don't know about you, I want to step into that this year a little more than I have in the past. Third, application. Christmas is a time for us to confess our own neediness. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Who does that sound like? Well, to me, it sounds like Mary's own son about 30 years later as he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, Mary in the Magnificat was anticipating the Beatitudes of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, who are the poor in spirit? Those who understand they have nothing on their own. Those who understand that they're bankrupt to meet their spiritual obligations. Those who understand they cannot pay their spiritual debt. Part of the Christmas message, I believe, is that those who think they are full are turned away, and those who know they are empty are filled. A rich man will rarely feel hungry enough to see his own neediness and ask to be filled. So the so-called wisdom of our day says, believe in yourself. You have what it takes, right? So, so business consulting and, and the power of personal think, uh, power of, of internal thinking and, and positive thinking, you know, go into Barnes and Noble and go in the self-help section and every single book at its core is going to say the same thing. You have what it takes. You can do it. The message of Christmas is that God came because you cannot do it. You are bankrupt. You are needy. You are impoverished without him. See, Jesus came to meet the needs of those who are needy. God exalts the humble and scatters those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. I love that phrase in our text this morning. Those who are proud in the imaginations, in the thoughts of their hearts. You see, none of us are filled. None of us are full. All are empty. Will you see that? Will you realize that? Will you own that? You own your neediness this Christmas. Now, one of our concerns, my concerns for our body is that we are so well put together. Right? This is Williamson County. All right. Now, I love this place. I'm not knocking this place, right? I think a lot of us moved here because it kind of projects the image of who we want to be. The good family, the, you know, the, the middle class or the upper middle class, the, the affluent, well-educated. And I think for most of us, we look good. We, we at least have the appearance of well-behaved people. We think we have what it takes, in other words. You see some danger in that. Sometimes I wonder how many of us try to add Jesus to our already full lives rather than coming to him as empty-handed beggars. The Bible says there is a sense, a sense that you must become poor and hungry. In other words, you must understand your need for a savior. Christmas is a wonderful opportunity to do that too. 
So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. And this is a very specific, practical thing I want you to do. And maybe this is the first time you've really done this, or maybe it's the thousandth time you've done it, but this is a great season to do it again. Find some time this season. Get away for an hour. All right, take a walk out in the woods, sit alone by the fire, just, just find some quiet time. Maybe it's in, even in your car, in your commute. Some of you get out a journal and start writing it, and I want you to spend some time in prayer. And here's how I would encourage you to direct your prayer time. Spend some time talking to your Savior about your neediness. You never outgrow your need for a Savior. Never, never. So what I would invite you to do is to go and figuratively kneel before the baby who was born naked into abject poverty and say to him, I am naked and I need you to clothe me. I am poor and I need you to meet my needs. I am empty and I need you to fill me. I am bankrupt without you. I bring to you my spiritual poverty, my relational poverty, my poverty of righteousness, the neediness of my soul, my fear, my anger, my sin, my broken heart, my unmet longings, my need for love. I need you, Jesus, to be not just the reason for the season, I need you to be my source, my salvation, my righteousness, my portion. I need you to fill me. And then, when you can pray that, you can sing like Mary. You can proclaim from personal experience, he has filled the hungry with good things. You can cry out, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Father, would we, would we kneel before your Son, Jesus, whom you sent to be our portion? And would we find our sense of need before him? Would we see in him the full answer to our longings, our desperate desire to be loved, our brokenness, our wretched, sinful, self-seeking patterns? And would we look to him to fill us And would that neediness, God, would it stir in us a heart of gratitude overflowing in joy that we, along with the mother of our Savior, could worship, that we would sing the songs that we sing this Christmas with hearts that have been utterly transformed as we connect to this message of Christmas in a way that may be more deep than we have in the past. I pray this for our body. I cry out to you, would you do this for us? In the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. Amen.